from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello. And welcome to our annual holiday episode of the Cry Havoc podcast. On December 14th, the Cry Havoc community gathered at Loft 227 on 29th Street in New York City for our annual holiday event, where we invited our audience to join us for an evening of holiday goodies and readings from this year's annual collection of very short holiday plays, written for our Gift to Square Foot program, which we'll tell you more about later in the episode. This year, 18 of our playwrights wrote new holiday plays for the Havoc for the Holidays collection. Like every year, each of our playwrights were given an assignment. Each of the very short holiday plays was to be no longer than five pages long, to take place during the holiday season, to feature at least one character from a play that they or another playwright developed in the workshop, and to be inspired by a randomly assigned song. This year, all of the inspiration songs were recordings by Frank Sinatra in celebration of the 100th anniversary of his birth. What follows is a live reading of nine of these plays, each followed by a selection from the song that inspired it and a few words from the playwright about how the play came to be. So sit back and enjoy. Happy holidays from all of us at Cry Havoc, and we will now join the event with the first of our very short holiday plays. So we're going to be starting off first with an ancient pitch, a very short holiday play by Jerzy Wisdowski, inspired by the song Witchcraft from the album A Man and His Music, and featuring the character Luther from his play Michael Bay's America, Part Four. And reading this tonight is going to be Kerry Flanagan. And in the first of several plays as a ten-year-old boy. (laughs) 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 An Ancient Pitch, a very short holiday play by Jersey Gwizdowski. Mid-December 1981, a shopping mall in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Sherry, 32, with big hair and long fingernails, stands behind a folding table that is covered in rolls of ribbon and wrapping paper. She hands a parcel to a customer. Next! Luther, eight, going on 38, approaches the table and stares at her. Hey there. This is much shorter than the line for Santa. Yeah, well, I'm not as popular as him. Yeah, well, I like you better. (laughs) Thanks, kid. So do you have something for me? Luther produces a small, lumpy gift, hand-wrapped in bright paper and too much ribbon. Sherry takes it, puzzled. This is wrapped already. I know, I did it myself. Even the scissors, Dad watch. Sweetie, this, this is a gift wrapping station. You already did a really great job. <laughs> You're supposed to open it. It's for you. It's for me? Oh, that's sweet. Kinda weird. Uh, Where? Sherry looks around. Please come to my house on Three Kings Day. Even if you bring me coal, I feel bad 
about all the bad stuff I did and how our house is in our chimney, and I was hoping I could sweeten the deal. It was really good this year, mostly, but everybody makes Whoa, mistakes. Whoa, okay, okay. <laughs> Slow down, honey. I, is your dad nearby or your mom? I don't have a mom. My dad's at home watching the Jets. <laughs> <laughs> did you come here alone? I'm here with my grandma, she's over there. Sherry looks into the crowd and spotting a familiar face, she freezes. That's your grandmother? Yeah, she said I could come talk to you. Sherry looks at Luther with a wave of recognition. Ah, oh, holy. Um, listen. She told me who you are. Sherry looks around uncomfortable. She focuses on Luther, unsure what to say next. She told you who I am. Listen, honey, Luther, Luther? Yeah, I know my name! <laughs> yeah, I know your name. I know everything about you. My grandma talks about you all the time. Sherry glances in the direction of the grandmother, uncomfortable. She talks about me. Yeah, she's the one who told me about you. Do you know the names of all the kids? Kid, what, kids? What did she tell you? There's a lot of names to remember. My teacher, Mrs. Friedel, can't remember all the kids' names. One time, she called me Lester. But I guess it's okay, because when she bends over to help the slow kids with the math problems, Omar and I make fun of her big butt. One time, I drew a picture of her, and Omar laughed so hard that she turned around. I don't know if she saw. Is that really bad? Are you gonna give me coal? <laughs> You don't have a mom? I have a grandma, and I have a dad. Then who am I? What? What did your grandma tell you about me? That you come down the chimney and bring presents to all the kids. <laughs> what, like, like Santa Claus? There's no such thing as Santa Claus. That's little kid stuff. I'm eight, and I take reading with the sixth graders. Okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> what did... What did she tell you? Sweetie, who do you think I am? You're a buffon. It says so on your present. Open it. Sherry unwraps the present. It's a small, hand-painted mug. She stares at it. It says right there, Bafana the Christmas Witch. <laughs> <laughs> there are the three wise men coming to your house asking if you knew the way to Bethlehem. And the question mark is you not knowing the way. This is them asking you if you want to come with them to see the baby. And you say no, because you're too busy. That's a camel. That's you changing your mind and going to find Jesus and Mary and Joseph, only it was too late. This is you dying full of regret. You could see <laughs> the X marks over your eyes and becoming a Bufana. You are a... You are a very good artist. <laughs> yeah, the other kids in my class can barely draw. So you should come to my house on Three Kings Day. I don't know. I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, my grandma says you won't come because you only visit Italian kids in Italy. But I said that you might make a special trip for me because I need you. Why? You can show them that mistakes are okay. Even though you didn't have time to visit the baby, you feel really bad about it after. 
just like when I drew the big butt picture of Mrs. Friedel. I felt really bad and I cried a little. The tears would have come out if I blinked, but I didn't blink because Omar, Omar is right there and that would have been a disaster. Do you forgive me? Sure, I forgive you. Well, I forgive you too. For what? For thinking you're too busy for the baby. And so is my grandma. That's why she wants you to come visit. Sherry looks off at Luther's grandmother. She told you that? Yeah. What about your dad? He said that he doesn't believe in the Christmas witch, so Grandma said, let's go ask the witch herself. And what did he say? He said, oh, believe it when I see it. That sounds exactly like him. You know my dad, too? Yeah, a little. Will you come visit us? We're not too busy. Yeah, sure, if I'm not too busy. Luther turns in the direction of his grandmother and yells out, I told you! <laughs> he comes around the table and hugs Sherry. Thanks, Bafana. I promise I'll be good until then. He runs off in the direction of his grandmother. Sherry watches. She looks at the ceramic mug. She watches Luther and his grandmother disappear. She turns to the line of customers. Next. End of play. And that was inspired by the Franz Nuns on witchcraft. You know, there's a little something like this. assignments that um, have become intertwined and uh, the character Luther has appeared in a, a couple of them and is uh, we've met him at various points throughout history and 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 I thought um, I thought it would be fun to uh, to meet him as a kid because he's a precocious uh, I guess as a kid you call him precocious as an adult you call him something else <laughs> um, <coughs> he's very talkative uh, aggressive um, creative person, and I was excited by that idea when I um, I googled Christmas and witch, <laughs> and there's this Italian tradition of the Bafana, and and Luther is uh, from an Italian uh, family, so so it seemed like a perfect uh, uh, matchup to to um, include his story uh, folded into this mythology. Um, that he may have inherited from his his culture of, of the Bafana, um, and uh, and to encounter an estranged mother in that way, uh, and that's where it came from. Awesome, thank you. All right, uh, next up we have anyway uh, we have anyway a very <laughs> short play, uh, but holiday play by Jennifer Kirkman. 
inspired by the song I Would Be In Love Anyway from the album Watertown, um, which incidentally, as an aside, was a Frank Sinatra album I had never heard of before, oh, yeah. and he released it in the 70s, and it was like a concept album about a divorce, and he some really good stuff. Listen to Watertown. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it featuring the character Bennett from the play Grievous Circle by Jerzy Gustowski, which was part of our... Uh, Lincoln Center Originals evening uh, this summer. Uh, so reading this, we have Will Clark and Caitlin Wilcox. Lights rise on a small <clears throat> living room. Large cardboard packing boxes are stacked around the room and some scattered furniture holds its own among the boxes. A basket of wrapped Christmas gifts sits on one of the boxes. Emily enters from the kitchen with a wrapped platter of cookies and a shiny holiday gift bag which she adds to the basket. She glances out the window and gazes down to the street below. She sighs and leans against the window ledge as she unbuttons her coat. There's a knock at the door. Emily walks to the door, takes a breath, and swings it open. Bennett steps through the door into the entryway. He's wearing a wool coat, and he carries a bottle of wine. Hi, Em. I'm sorry, I had to... Yeah, well, I sent the car away. We're already late. We'll have to wait for another one. Come on in. Yeah. Bennett enters the living room. He stands aside a bit awkwardly and takes in what he sees. Jeez, you've made a lot of progress here. My sister flew in last week to help. Carrie, she's in town. Yeah, I close on the new place next month. Those three are yours and you still have a few things in the hall closet too. Okay, I'll make a plan to get them when I get back after New Year's. You're going to... Okay. How is your sister? She was fine. Good, even. They look at each other for a moment. She raises, he raises an eyebrow at her. She smiles a little. Okay, it was kind of nuts, but I needed the help and the wine. She'll be there later today. I'm pretty sure she's going to behave herself. Oh, great. We'll see. Give her a break. She promised to try. This is hard for everybody. It's been hard for me, too. I'm sure. I'm sorry. I know that. I do. Bennett checks his watch and glances out the window. They're both quiet for a while. How are you feeling lately? Can we not? She checks her phone. Six minutes away. Okay. Bennett leans against the window ledge. They're quiet again. For a moment. You and, uh, <clears throat> you guys are going away for New Year's? Yeah, we're, uh, we're going to the cabin with the guys. Oh. Cool. Come on, Em. What the hell are we doing? Small talk? Why did you even want me to come today? I absolutely don't. This is for my dad. He asked you to do this. I told you that, Bennett. Jesus, Emily, I don't know what to say to you. Yes, we have plans for New Year's. I'm trying like hell to make a life. I apologize to you every way I know how. I'm here today, and I don't even understand why. I'm trying. No, I'm trying. I'm trying to be okay. I'm trying not to be mad, but it doesn't go away just because you're sorry. I have to make a new life, too. Look, Em... I thought I could do this for you today. 
I really tried to be okay with this insane plan so we could celebrate your mission with your family, but I thought that you wanted me there. I don't think I can go with you if the only reason I'm there is to pretend we're together so your grandmother doesn't freak out. Practically everybody else knows. This is ridiculous. I've apologized to you a thousand times. You know that. But I don't owe you this Christmas charade. But you're so damn good at charades. That's not fair. Damn it, Bennett, this barely scratches the surface. We were supposed to have plans. We are supposed to be making a life. Do you have any idea what this New Year's is supposed to mean to me? What this stupid Christmas means to my family? This is supposed to be a better Christmas. A good Christmas. Do you even remember Don't last you year? dare. Of course I do. Why do you think I'm here? You sat with me in the hospital on Christmas and looked me in the eye and told me how I would be okay. And you let me tell you all those stories about what we would do this Christmas. You promised me that next year will be better. And you knew the whole time you were leaving me. You asked me to make that promise. And I wanted it to be true. And yeah, I waited, Em. Of course I waited to tell you. What else was I supposed to do? You know what? Fine. You don't owe me anything. You owe it to my dad. You promised him that you would be here for me. In sickness and in health. They trusted you. They thought I was in good hands with you. You were. I thought I was. Are you kidding me? You were. This doesn't cancel everything we had, everything we've been through. Don't be naive, Bennett. It really might. My dad can't look my grandmother in the eye and tell her that, oh, never mind, you won't stick around to take care of me after all. I sure as hell can't ask him to look her in the eye and tell her that you decided to spend Christmas with your boyfriend instead of your wife. Em, I am here because I love you so much that I will keep pretending today just because you asked me to. I did give up Christmas with Jarvis for you. I am here, though you don't actually want me here. I will obviously do anything for you. That hasn't changed. You know that, Emily, but I cannot owe you forever. Congratulations. You're the big, brave hero stuck here on Christmas pretending that you actually love me. But that's exactly what you're asking me to do. They are throwing a special Christmas just for me. And if I have to suck it up and go and pretend I'm glad to be there, then you have to come pretend too. My grandmother has no idea about us. That's why my dad wants you there. She thinks this is just a celebration, that I'm out of the woods and you and I are going to live a long, happily ever after, and that's never going to be true. I can't change that. And you're never going to forgive me for it, are you? I told you I'm trying. And I do know you're sorry, but I'm not even allowed to be mad at you because you're just being who you are. You're the brave one for coming out, and I'm just supposed to be fine and happy for you. Humiliated and abandoned, but totally fine. I did not abandon you. Are you kidding me? Just because you didn't run to Jarvis while I was still sick? 
this isn't just about you, Em. Of course you get to be mad at me, of course, but not forever and not today. Well, this was a great idea, a real pleasure. Merry Christmas, I'm gonna go. Fine, go, thanks. Bennett starts to move toward the door. He stops and turns back to her. No, you, you know what? You owe me too. I know this sucks for you, but you blew it. You were supposed to be my best friend. We were a team. You were supposed to understand. I know I was. We were a team. You should have told me a really long time ago. Maybe you should have known. Exactly. You made a fool of me for years, and now I get to be a fool for Christmas. Shut up. Sorry. I'm serious. This isn't funny to me. You should have trusted me way before I got sick. Em, no one thinks you're a fool. Really? And I'm really sorry. I really am sorry. I couldn't tell you before. I know you are, Bennett, but I'm still so angry at you and I feel stupid and embarrassed and scared and just mad. But I know you're sorry. I just don't know what to do with that yet. Yeah, I know. She looks down at her phone. The car's here. I'm going to go. <clears throat> I'm going to come with you. No, you were right. This was insane. I won't ask you to keep hiding. I'll go handle my family. You should go to... to Jarvis. Nah, he's with his brother. Trust me, I'd rather face your dad. Emily stands and starts to button her coat. I don't know what I would have done without you last year. It's still hard to figure out what I'm gonna do now. Me too. You know that, right? Yeah. How about, as a start, we go see your family for this celebration? It's a pretty good cause. And I did promise that we would have a better Christmas this year. I don't know. Last year might be hard to beat. We can talk to your grandmother. Together. That feels like a terrible plan. <laughs> and not exactly the better Christmas the rest of them are dreaming of. Uh, I think they'll be okay. Especially since you are. Maybe. And you can be mad at me all day if you want. It'll be fun. But Em, pretty much everybody in your family already knows. I don't want to pretend with them anymore. I know. Emily picks up the basket of gifts. She gives Bennett a long look and hands him the basket. She opens the door and turns back to pick up the cookie tray. She looks back at him. Okay. Let's go. She yeah. heads out the door. <clears throat> Bennett takes a deep breath. He takes a quick look around the living room, picks up the bottle of wine, heads out the door, pulling it shut behind him. End of play.
And uh, that was inspired by uh, I Would Be In Love Anyway from Waterman. ones I think you have to go. Wait, I have a surprise for you. Now the plane's almost boarded. Since we can't be together on Christmas, I, I wanted to tell you as close to Christmas as possible. Eddie stands. He clears his throat. <clears> throat. The airline attendant watches curiously. Angela, as you know, the past five months have been the best in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Is this? Yes, it is. 
Oh my god. Gosh, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, wait, yeah, uh, you have to kneel. Kneel! Uh, <laughs> you have uh. to kneel. And he kneels uncomfortably and crosses himself. The uh, airline attendant leaps forward in excitement. No, not like that. I, I uh, like, like you're genuflecting. Uh, okay. He shifts, so he's, not, he's on one knee. Now go. Angela, you are the most wonderful woman I've ever met, and, and you've always known what's best for me. I, I know you've been dropping hints the past couple of months, and, and I want you to know I've been listening. At first, I, I wasn't certain, but now I, I couldn't be more sure. Yes, yes! I'm joining a monastery. <laughs> and he stands, Angela's mouth falls open in shock. You were right, this is my calling. Ever since we ever since we left the retreat, all you could talk about was how beautiful the monastery chapel was. Yes. And then you announced that there should be no touching between us. Because we had just read Humana Vitae. Which was all about the beauty of celibacy. And other things like And the Gregorian Chants Christmas album? You've been playing that every day. No, it's Christmas it's Christmas. Uh you you didn't have to read into that. But you knew I would. And the constant prayers for vocations, and then you're asking questions like, have you ever thought about your vocation? What is God calling you to do? I think about my vocation all the time. Marriage! Eddie, marriage is the vocation. Huh? Uh, that church would be beautiful for our wedding. Pause. <laughs> but you wouldn't kiss me. I was saving that for marriage. Oh. Uh, yeah. Marriage. <clears throat> All right, this is the final boarding call for flight 7715 to Philadelphia. It was a sweet try, Eddie. Just, just get on the plane and we'll talk about it. But later. Angela, I, I really want no, this. No, I don't understand. Why? Any chance? <clears throat> still not, still not. I'll shock eyes in vat. Nerd a shock high par. Schlafenheim schlar high, Schlafenheim schlar. You're really serious about this? At first, I was only doing it for you, but then I realized nothing has ever made me more happier. Oh. Nothing? Gosh. Not one thing. Touch them. These eyes fall through her chest. I'm gonna have to break this up. What are you doing? Touch them. Then tell me that's not that nothing has ever made you happier. This is <laughs> This is what I'm called to do. No amount of groping in an airport is going to change that. Doors are closing for flight 77. Angela marches over to the desk. Okay, can't you see what's happening here? My boyfriend is becoming a monk. <laughs> the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. No, shut up. She shuts up. Five months. It's been five months since that retreat. Five months you've been lying to you me. You never told me what you wanted. She stares at him in disbelief. The airline attendant begins to shut the door to the gate. Wait, wait, wait. He runs to the gate, stands under the opening. The airline attendant crosses her arm impatiently. I'm sorry it turned out this way, Ange. 
It, this is just not what I expected. What did you expect? I'd make the announcement. You'd be sad, but, but also grateful and moved. And then we'd have a bittersweet, a beautiful goodbye kiss and... You expected me to kiss you? <laughs> I thought it would be romantic. Except for the part where you dump me? Angela, I've never been kissed before, and, and once I walk through this gate, I never will be. Eddie gestures to the mistletoe hanging above them. Please. I'm sorry, Eddie. This is not what I wanted for Christmas. But it's what I need. Then enjoy the monastery. I have to catch my flight. Angela exits. Eddie watches her leave. He turns toward the gate. Hold on there. He stops. I once sent my ex a picture of a necklace with Santa emojis next to it and the words HINT HINT in capital letters. He got me slippers that year. <laughs> oh. Dude didn't even open the email. Uh, sorry to hear- It's nice you tried. Yeah, but I, I, I guess I was just hearing what I wanted to hear. She kisses him full on the mouth. Eddie's shocked for a moment, and he kisses her back. Magical, romantic moment. Merry Christmas, lover boy. May God bless you abundantly. <laughs> Eddie jumps happily through the gates. Christmas music plays. End of play. <laughs> All right, and uh, that was inspired by uh, Leaving on a Jet Plane, this version right here. <laughs> Once again, as a young man, <laughs> Steak and 
short holiday play by Kevin Hallman. 1989, a diner. George, 28, and Henry, 9, sit in a booth at a dingy old greasy spoon. Henry's face is irretrievably buried in a large menu. You've been staring at that menu about 10 minutes. About halfway to forever. You asleep behind that thing, getting some shut-eye? 40 winks? Put the menu down! You know you're going to order the same goddamn thing you always order. I don't know why. Why? Why do you always order the same stuff? Why do we always eat at the same restaurant? That's a dumb question. You slow or something? It's a fine place. I never heard something stupider. More stupid. Don't sass me. Where the hell's the girl, the waitress? It's going to be Christmas miracle. We get fed anytime soon. It's only Christmas Eve. Exactly, and I ain't waiting until some stupid fat guy comes around just so I can get a plate of eggs. Santa isn't stupid. Hey, <laughs> you make your living jumping in chimneys. You're stupid. <laughs> I don't like it here. Well, there's a lot of things I don't like. A lot of things. No use complaining about things you can't change. There's a restaurant across the street. This ain't a restaurant. It's a diner. Have some respect. Some courtesy. Some common sense. It's a diner, and it's where we're eating. I don't want to live with you. Oh, whoop-de-doodle-doo. Ah, you think I want you around? Like a hole in the head, kid. You smell like cigarettes. Yeah, like a visit from the IRS. <laughs> What's that? Like the herps. That's how much I want you living with me. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Lucky for you. <laughs> You're mean. No, maybe that's right. Too bad for both of us. What you gonna order? Damn it, where's the waitress? I want coffee, Uncle G. No, I want to spend the night with Cindy Crawford. Let's stay the hell out of Fantasyland. <laughs> I'm gonna eat steak and eggs with toast and grits and a side of fruit and bacon, and sausage, too. Are you trying to get fat? <laughs> fat people only get, never get far in business uh, unless they come to some money, inherit it, legacy. And we know that ain't happening for you. So, not with your situation, anyway. <laughs> you can get fat if you make a lot of dough, but you can't start fat. No one will trust you. They'll think you got, you know, self-control. <laughs> You're ordering what you always order. What about the money my parents had? <laughs> That's good. It's a laugh. I'm hungry. Duh, kid. Duh from here to Timbuktu. I'm getting steak and eggs and toast and grits and a side of fruit, bacon, sausage, links, not patties. Well, who am I, the Sultan of Bernay? What does that mean? How uh, the hell should I know? You're getting waffles, plain, fries, cheese on the side. You're getting what you always get. I had to open all the Christmas presents, the ones your parents bought. Had to make sure they didn't get you a drum or a trumpet or something loud or something messy that would screw up with my carpet or something. They didn't. There's a Nintendo, some games for the Nintendo. Thing called Hungry Hippo. Looks like it's for babies, I don't get it. Pretty surprised there wasn't any candy. 
There wasn't any candy. Don't look at me like that. There wasn't any candy. I didn't eat it, okay? I was hoping for some candy. <laughs> candy goes in stockings. Yeah, that makes sense. I could wrap them up again for you. The presents, if you want. I'm not good at it. Seems like a waste of time. All right, fine. I'll wrap them up for you. I believe in karma, Henry. Do you? No. You don't even know what karma is. Yes, I do. Be quiet. I'm trying to teach you something. You're not my dad. No kidding, Sherlock. <laughs> karma is the idea that bad things happen to you in the future because of all the bad things you did in the past. And I know the bad things that I did to get me into this, to get to here, but I definitely find myself wondering what some kind of awful thing you must have done to end up here at the bottom with me. What did you do? I don't know. I'm eight. I thought you were 12. I'm eight. That's worse than I thought. Well, I'm sorry your mom and dad died. I'm sorry for you. Did you love them? No. They're family, so that's that. Maybe I love my sister. I don't know. What does that mean? Where's the waitress? I loved my parents. Well, of course you did. You're 12. You're eight years old. You don't know any better. You're like a puppy dog. You love everything. Uh, but you'll even love that dumb hippo game. Did you get me something for Christmas? What? I'm getting you dinner. The waitress enters. <laughs> you ready to order? Yeah, I'm ready to order. I'm ready to be treated like I exist. Like I'm not some goddamn invisible apparition. <laughs> it was daylight when we got here. What do you want? I want you to apologize. Why do we toast with that? <laughs> <laughs> George gets lost in a long stuttering curl. <laughs> How about you, little prince? <laughs> Henry stares at the menu, deep deliberation. Steak and Hey! Egg. Toots. Okay, don't make me hit you. I hit back. What do you want? Uh, you got gift certificates or something like that in this rat hole? Yeah, we keep them right next to the fancy china. Yeah, go get the manager. Go get him to write me up something. <laughs> a gift certificate. 25 bucks. How do you know the manager's a guy? Oh, you're cute. You're disgusting. <laughs> I'm getting you something for Christmas, little H. I'm getting you a gift certificate to this very place, and that way you can order whatever you want sometime. Henry examines the menu again. Steak and eggs. Grits. Toast, wheat toast. Fruit, sausage links, and bacon. I did the math. I have enough, Uncle G. It's less than $25. Please don't be mad. I don't want you to be mad. Christ, Henry, I'm not mad, okay? It's okay. Eat whatever you want today. It's on me. Merry Christmas. Do I still get the gift certificate? Don't push. <laughs> when the hell is that waitress coming back? Blackout. End of play. <laughs> And that's uh, play with
was inspired by Cycles, which is this song. This short play takes place 25 years before the play proper commences, and both of these characters are at the points of their lives they would consider the lowest. I was very interested in looking at these two unhappy people and finding a resolution to their scene that felt hopeful without falling into the trap of being saccharine. Thanks to everybody, happy holidays to everyone from New Orleans. And um, next up, we're gonna read one more play, and we're gonna take a break to get some beverages and food and such like that. And uh, then we'll read a couple more. And uh, this next one is For Goodness Sakes, a very short holiday play by Allie Keller, inspired by the song What a Funny Girl You Used to Be, also from the album Watertown, and featuring the character Lennox from her play Independent Christmas. And reading today will be Will Clark and Kerry Flanagan. For Goodness Sake, a very short holiday play by Allie Keller. A modest bedroom, a dresser, a vanity, a nightstand, and a bed with a few stuffed animals arranged neatly on top of the comforter. Hank, 36, sits on the bed facing a door that leads to a bathroom. He takes a deep breath. Sweetheart, please come out of there. No. Please. I don't want to talk to you. Please come out and talk to me. It's Christmas. You're making me sad. I don't want to be sad on Christmas. I had a lovely night planned for us. You're the one who made it depressing. You're the one who made it sad Christmas. Lennox, I'm not talking to you about this through a door. I don't want to talk to you about this at all. I want to go back downstairs. I want to have a nice Christmas. For either of those things to happen, you need to come out of the bathroom. Lennox, 28, opens the bathroom door. Her hair is in curly pigtails, finished with red ribbon, and she's wearing the kind of Christmas dress you'd see on a doll. Velvet top, ribbon empire waist, and a shimmery tool bottom. Hank looks Lennox up and down. Don't give me that look. You look really pretty. Stop it. I'm so grateful for you that you would try this for me. But... Let's just go downstairs and have a nice dinner, and we can talk about this later. We were having a nice dinner. We haven't touched the food yet. Because you refused to eat until I changed. I just wanted to have a Christmas dinner, and then you come out carrying the food, singing Santa Claus is coming to town, and that. You don't even fit into that dress. You're torturing me with this, Lennox. Well, forgive me for thinking Christmas would be a good day to give my husband a present and then maybe get a little something in return. Well, your gift didn't exactly put me in the giving mood. This dress isn't your present. This dress is for me. You really expect me to believe dressing up like a child is just about you? 
It's not just a little bit about babies. I haven't made the mistake of mentioning babies since the last time we had sex. And yet babies have mysteriously come up for the third time this week. But it's the first time we've talked about it in months. You made baby carrots, baby peas, and baby back ribs for dinner. I also made mashed potatoes. Len, come on. I didn't even notice. Maybe you notice because your subconscious is trying to tell you something. I don't You're finally ready to have kids. I don't think it's my subconscious trying to tell me something. I think it's my wife. We have been married for three years. It's not absurd to me for me to bring up the subject of children. No, but after being married to me for three years, it's absurd to bring up kids with me. You're the one being absurd. You're a good man, and you would be a great dad. I have told you repeatedly that I am not ready for kids. I will never... Be ready for kids. You might, if we talked about it together. That could be my gift this year. Hank scoots away from Lennox on the bed. You don't want to discuss it. That's why you decided to do this on your own. I'm happy to do this for you. But if you thought I needed this, you can't think that I'm ready for kids. It will be different. He or she will be your kid. And my kid will grow up and go to school and make friends and their friends will come here and those kids won't be mine. You should give yourself more credit. I have a problem. We have a problem. We made a vow to love and honor our marriage even through all the bad parts. Your husband isn't supposed to be the bad parts. You're not a, you're not a bad person. I am if I give you a kid. If I chain you to me forever. I signed up for forever with you. I asked for that. I'm asking you. Just because someone asked you to kill them doesn't mean you're not a murderer. They're not a murderer if the person dying is in too much pain to go on living. For God's sakes, Len, you're supposed to say you're comparing our marriage to murder. You're not supposed to start defending murderers. <laughs> We don't even have kids, and you're already twisting things to make it okay. We don't have kids yet. I don't want to do this with you today. Let's just go downstairs, eat, and open presents. I don't want to. I want to talk about this. There's nothing to talk about. We will never have kids. If you want kids, then you need to be with someone else. I don't want to be with anyone else. Then you need to accept what I've told you. Look at me. Look at how I'm dressed right now. This is what acceptance looks like. Then accept that as long as you are with me, you can't have children. Lennox scoots in closer to Hank on the bed. I can't accept that. Then we can't be together. We're not together now. We haven't been in a while. You barely looked at me. Because I can't. Because of what you did. It worked, didn't it? You finished for the first time in months. While staring at that picture. That picture is not a big deal. It was a picture of me. When you were nine. Well, it fixed the problem. It is a problem. I finally threw away the photo like you asked me to. I shouldn't have been the one asking. You should want to stop this. Not me. Lennox grabs his stuffed animal off the bed and squeezes it tight. 
She puts on a child's voice. I'm just trying to... Stop! The voice just feels wrong now. It doesn't work anymore. Because of the picture? Or because of the dressing room? Hank looks away from Lennox, then down at the floor. She places her hand on top of his. I notice everything you do, Hank. I can't take my eyes off of you. I just happened to glance in her direction, and I got distracted for a second. I'm sorry. I know. It's just I've never... I've never distracted you like that. Len, I love you. And I love you. So I brought this so I bought this dress, the one she wore. It's the largest size they had. Hank sinks down on the bed. I didn't even recognize it. Lennox stares helplessly at Hank. It was a stupid idea. I obviously wasn't going to look the same in it. You just look like like you were in a fairy tale. And I wanted to be a part of that. I'll change. The dress isn't the problem. The problem is you're in a child's dress after a two-month dry spell. What's going to happen to you after four months or six? I'm willing to work through whatever it is. I won't do anything I, I don't want to do. I know, but everything you do makes it harder for me. Hank, you're stronger than this. You've never done anything wrong. Look at what I've done to you. Hank slides his hand out from under hers. Hank, please just let me keep trying. Lennox places her hand on Hank's arm. She gently clasps her hand around Hank's arm. Let's just enjoy this Christmas, Len. Please. Lennox nods. Hank kisses her on the forehead, gets up, and starts to leave. He turns to see that Lennox hasn't moved. I'll be right there. Hank leaves. Lennox takes a deep breath in and walks into the bathroom. She reaches into the garbage pail and pulls out a photo. She walks back into the bedroom and places the photo in the drawer of the nightstand. She grabs an oversized sweater from the dresser, pulls it on over her dress, and heads downstairs. End of play. Merry Christmas! Uh, that was inspired by What a Funny Girl You Used to Be, which was this song. <laughs> yeah, yeah let's, let's talk about this. Uh, so, every year when we pick the songs that we get out of the like blank envelopes or whatever, we open them and we listen to them for a second. And um, or for like 40 seconds, we get like a 40 second clip that we listen to it for the first time. Uh, and every year, my process for it sort of works the same way. Uh, we're somewhere around like 30 to 35 seconds in. The first time I hear it, my brain 
strong, and therein lies the play. And to hold myself to whatever that initial impulse is, I say that word out loud, and it's very funny because it's wildly unrelated to whatever it is we're listening to at the time. And I do that every year, except for this year, uh, where about 30 to 35 seconds in, the only thing I said out loud was, I am so sorry for what I am going to do to you. Is <laughs> what I said this year. Uh, and the reason was um, for that, I will now take you on the journey of the 40 seconds, the only 40 seconds I've listened to of the song. I've listened to the whole thing, didn't need to hear the rest of it. Um, but heard the first line of it, which is like, um,
Hello, this is Jennifer Reichert, a Cry Havoc resident playwright and the producer of the Cry Havoc podcast. While our live audience takes a break for holiday cookies and beverages, I wanted to let you know that all of these very short holiday plays, plus eight others by Cry Havoc playwrights, are included when you gift a square foot of Cry Havoc's rehearsal and performance space to yourself or a theater lover in your life. Go to www.cryhavoccompany.org gift to gift a piece of Cry Havoc this holiday season. Copies of the holiday plays will continue to be available at this address even after the holiday season is ended. In addition to gifting a square foot, you also have the option to give support for one of Cry Havoc's programs, including sponsoring the development of a one-act play, the training of a Cry Havoc summer apprentice, or the production of a future episode of the Cry Havoc podcast. Now we will rejoin the event with Chris Comfort and Jenny Curlin reading my very short holiday play, Effigy, inspired by the song Good Thing Going from the album She Shot Me Down and featuring the character Nadine from my play Just Julian. Effigy, very short holiday play by Jennifer Reichert. A campsite in the Argentinian Andes with a tent nested among hillocks of grass. A small fire burns in the fire pit, and the peaks of the Andes rise sharply behind. Nadine, athletic and scruffy, in a tank top and cargo pants, <laughs> kneels on the ground, <laughs> stuffing tufts of grass into a scarecrow-like dummy. She surveys her handiwork, then sits the dummy up against a hillock. She walks forward and looks over the edge of a short cliff. What took you so long? The sun is setting. I finished the old man. Did you get me a surprise? Hold your horses. I'll be right up. You had a long list. She watches him from the cliff a moment. Robert, shaggy and rumpled, in a yellow hoodie, comes into the campsite uh, panting. He shrugs off the pack and hoodie and (laughs) flings the hoodie over a grass hillock. He offers her the pack and she tosses him a canteen. He drinks deeply while she rummages through the pack. Razor, soap, steaks, canned heat, scotch, mask. They didn't have too many masks. Uh, I think that's supposed to be the president. Nadine puts the mask on the stuffed man. That'll work. (laughs) Did you get the fireworks, M80s? In the paper bag. Are you sure about all those fireworks with the grass? I built up the fire ring, dug the pit down, and cleared the grass back further, and I got buckets of water. We wait for midnight, put the viejo in the fire pit, and set him on fire. (laughs) So the most important thing we're rid of from 2015 is the president of Argentina? Well, um, thank you. It's the uh, (laughs) only mask they had left, right? Burning your political leaders is pretty standard, I think. National embarrassments, but it can be personal, too. Your boss, your mother-in-law, you know, out with the old... I gave our old man those scratchy socks that you gave that gave you that awful blister in his hands or the red socks that ruined my favorite white shirt. And plus I had, you know, thoughts of 2015 while stopping him. Good riddance 2015! <laughs> Robert digs into the bag and pulls out and holds up a bag of fun-sized Snickers. Oh my god, real Snickers. <laughs> <laughs> that must have cost you a fortune. Well, there's only one day left. Happy New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve to you, too. <clears throat> Let's put the fireworks in the VA hole. Uh, she grabs the paper bag and the stuffed man and starts shoving fireworks inside the grass <clears throat> stuffing. Um, 
It's New Year's Eve, or it's New Year's tomorrow. Yes. And the next day we're leaving. Hiking down to Mendoza and flying back to the States. Yes. We should talk um, about that. About where we're going. There's no more tomorrows left. Nadine stops stuffing fireworks and sits back looking at him. I know. I don't want this to end. No, me either, but we have to. Nadine crawls over and kisses him. Fly to Seattle with me. Uh, move in with me. Uh, no. Why not? It's too fast. I'm not moving to Seattle. We've never even gone on a date. We've shared a tent for five months. <laughs> I'd say we've moved past dinner and movie. No, we haven't. We have. We've. We've never been to a movie. We've crossed four borders. We fell into a ravine. We almost died together on that suspension bridge. And again, we sleep in the same tent. So I think we've skipped ahead in the whole courtship ritual. Which might be fine if we were planning to live here, but we don't live here. This is an interlude. Let's just enjoy what we've had. I wish it didn't have to end, but it's time to go back to our lives. Or we could continue enjoying it together. Back where we really live, we are basically zero. I don't know... I don't know what you're like there. You know everything about me. I don't think I do. And, and how important is the stuff I do know about you back in civilization? This has been fun. Fun. It's been fun. But it can't be sustained in a place where we have like modern world responsibilities. It's been amazing up here. It was a good thing. Let's just not ruin it. I want to remember it. And how would it be ruined? By keeping it going. I don't want to be disappointed. I couldn't take disappointing you. You wouldn't. I'm not a magical mountain nymph, Robert. I'm a, I'm a human woman. <laughs> Nadine eyes his yellow hoodie. I should put something more on. She picks it up. He stiffens. Can I wear this? You don't mind, right? It's fine. <clears throat> no, it's not. You never let me wear this hoodie. You don't want me to wear this one because your ex-wife gave it to you? She didn't give it to me. I borrowed it and I never gave it back. <laughs> so give it back to her. She tosses the hoodie at him. She pulls a sweatshirt out of the tent and puts it on. He puts on the hoodie. Or get rid of it. I can't. Can't get rid of it or can't give it back because you want to keep it. She asked for it back. And you didn't give it. I have no idea what kind of relationship you have with her back there. You might, you might still be hung up on her. You hang on to things. You hang on to things of hers. We don't have a relationship where we know everything about our exes. Our whole relationship is up here. Let's just let it be here as it was. Please. I was married to her for 12 years. Lisa is part of who I am. Was. And you want me to move into the house you lived in with her. 
I can't move to Seattle into that same house. So you can run into her and return her hoodie so you can have doubts and we get driven apart? I know that you are the person I want to be with. You can say that here, but how do I know that? Because I say it. It's you. You're tough and loyal and you see the beauty everywhere. And the smallest thing. Forget Seattle, we can go to Chicago. I'll move into your place. <laughs> I don't have a place anymore. I had to move out of my place when I broke up with Brett. Another thing you didn't know about me. I knew that. I meant Chicago. And I'm, I'm not flying back to Chicago. I've spent seven months letting go of everything from my life before. Job, apartment, friends. Friends who only knew me as Brett's girlfriend. Habits, everything I could let go of. I'm going home. Do you know where home is? No, I don't. But I want to. Why would you want to let go of this? I want to hold on to this. This is more than just a mountain hookup. <laughs> Didn't mean anything to you? Of course it means something to me. But when we go back, we're going to have jobs and family obligations and rents or a mortgage. Real, real life is not the same as this life. Do you have a mortgage? Robert shakes his head. And he flops down in front of the tent. Shoot. This is disappointing. I, 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 if you want, I can have one. No. <laughs> shoot, shoot, shoot. Nadine sighs and reaches into the tent. She pulls out a zipper pouch, unzips it, and pulls out a syringe and vial. She fills the syringe from the vial, lifts her shirt, and injects herself in the belly. He watches, stunned. I'm diabetic. That's real life. This whole time, for five months, I've never seen No, you. because I hid it. One thing I couldn't let go of. But I wasn't going to let it slow me down. And I didn't want you to treat me like I was some delicate... Whatever. Oh, this is serious. Yes, but this wasn't real life. I didn't need to disclose. I hid it. Who knows what else you've kept hidden? To protect me. Or yourself. She returns the syringe to the pouch and rezips it and then reaches for the bag of Snickers. She tears it open with her teeth and takes <laughs> out one and holds it in her hand. Waiting. You have... Hmm. You have an ex-wife who's still important to you. And shared friends back there. That's real life. I can't try to fit into your old life. I want a new, real life. Our time up here has been the best thing in the last three years for me. I really needed this trip. I needed you. What if the trip didn't end? What if we keep going and go somewhere else? But you're tied there. Your life is with other people who aren't me. Wait, it doesn't have to be. Boo. She sighs. She eats the Snickers. Then she goes to the Viejo and starts stuffing him with more fireworks. I used the last of the stroganoff packs for our dinner tonight. Nadine. We have the scotch for drinks. Snickers for dessert. We have three more hours till midnight and then we burn the old man. That's enough fireworks. We're trying to burn an effigy, not start a fracking operation. 
Nadine keeps stuffing the fireworks in. Robert kneels down next to her and stops her. She looks at him. You want too much. We had this. This was good. We should move on and keep this special. Please, I need it to stay good. I need just one to stay good. One that doesn't end in flames or ashes. Just let me keep this one. He arranges the old man's clothes. She takes out a sharpie and writes 2015 across the chest. This was the one good thing in a disastrous year, and I need to put this year behind me. You don't want enough. We can keep this and make it more. What if we kept going and it all gets worn out? I couldn't take that. It would break me. She walks over to the cliff and looks down at the town. Robert follows her. It's not going to wear away. I wouldn't be enough. And you have a whole life there. You have strong ties there. You're not like me. I don't think you can let go. And that's okay. It's it's. Really okay. I can. I, I want to. I will. Saying it doesn't make it so. He walks over and inspects the Viejo. He wrestles off his yellow hoodie and struggles to fit it on to the old man. She looks over and sees the hoodie on the Viejo. He hoists the old man up and strides to the fire. What are you doing? It's not midnight yet. It is somewhere. Okay. We're starting New Year's now. Good riddance, 2015. He flings the old man into the flames. The yellow hoodie blackens as flames engulf the Viejo. I'm ready to go, wherever you want. Nadine stares into the flames as they leap high in the air, crack. I want a new life, too, Nadine. And I want it with you. Nadine looks up from the fire. She turns to Robert. I hear Santa Monica is beautiful. He pulls her close, and they kiss. The flames detonate in a crescendo of exploding fireworks. <laughs> End of play. <laughs> All right. And that was inspired by Sinatra's version of Good Thing Going. Somebody who wanted too much and somebody who didn't want enough and, 
and that the relationship was equally important, but that for one person it was important that it ended well, and the other person it was important that it went on. And you know, the ideas about taking someone for granted and um, what happens if kids fade and all those things are in the song. And so I had this idea about a relationship at this point, and then I also I grew up in Ecuador and we had this tradition of the viejo and I wanted to incorporate that into the play. So that's a New Year's tradition, but I wanted it to be, you know, it started not at New Year's, it started in the Midwest and then it moved to the Andes and it ended up in the Andes on New Year's Eve. Um, I was speaking with my plays. <laughs> Changing continents in the middle. Um, but I, I thought of Nadine who I had this very sure idea because I wrote a play about her when she was a teenager about like what her trajectory was. And I was like, well, what if something happened to her, like a bad breakup? And then Robert is actually from another play of mine, and he was always into like mountains and stuff. And so I put them together and I thought this would be a good uh, matchup of people who wanted, who valued the relationship for, for very different reasons and needed different. All right. Uh, next up, we have Annie Philaxis, a very short holiday play by Julia Belbao, inspired by the song My Sweet Lady from the album Sinatra and Company, and featuring the character Annie from her play See You Later, Alligator. And uh, we have reading this one, Will Clark and Kristen Brown. Annie Philaxis. Lights up on the bedroom of a hotel suite in a five-star hotel. Annie storms in wearing a silver gown. She kicks her heels off and throws her clutch onto the bed. Hastily grabbing a number of belongings, uh, she begins packing a small suitcase. Trevor rushes in wearing a dapper tux and smoothing out his disheveled hair. Annie, slow down. She ignores him and marches into the bathroom. Annie... Wait. Happy New Year, Trevor. Happy New Year. Happy, happy, happy New Year to you. I hope it's everything you wanted it to be. Stop packing. Can we talk about this like adults? Oh, you want me to handle this more maturely? Handle something my boyfriend just did that was so embarrassingly high school more maturely? What the hell was that? I have no idea. She, she jumped me. She made out with my face. There was no time for me to even think about what was happening before it was over. Really? You didn't have any time to think. You weren't thinking, hmm, why am I pouring my ex-girlfriend a glass of champagne as everyone is counting down to the new year? Hmm, where is my current girlfriend so I can give her a glass of champagne? I'd really love to kiss her on the new year. God, she really looks beautiful tonight. She I'm really... not the one who was ignoring my boyfriend all night getting my father's rich friends to give money to my precious Kickstarter. I'm sorry that you felt that way, but I'm not going to apologize for being ambitious. You know these millionaires are most generous when they're liquored up. Yeah, well, it's New Year's. There's a time and a place for that. There's no time or place for cheating on your girlfriend right in front of her face. I didn't cheat on you. I was assaulted. And don't you dare accuse me of neglecting you. I'm not the one who was downstairs at the casino all night with Luke doing God knows what. I invited you 
You suggested we go to Staples to buy a paper shredder so I can throw my money away more productively. And I stand by that. You can't do casinos, Trevor, especially based on what happened last time. You know that guy at the blackjack table was spooking the dealer. That doesn't mean you punch him and break his nose. I can't call my father again to bail you out of jail. Next time that happens, you're on your own. You're changing the subject. You started it. Ugh, I hate you, and Lilia is still in love with you. Do you blame her? Oh my god. <laughs> I have never found you more attractive. Uh, uh, Annie was just packing her suitcase. Annie, I love you, okay? Ding ding. Trevor's phone goes off. He pulls it out of his pocket and quickly sends a text. Who was that? Paul. Just wondering where we went. <laughs> Trevor. Cautiously moves towards her, he puts his hands on her hips and pulls her closer to him. In his best George Bailey voice. <laughs> his best George Bailey voice. <laughs> what is it you want, Annie? What do you want? You want the moon? Just say your word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> that does not work for everything, Trevor. <laughs> And he pushes him away, slumps down on the edge of the bed. I'm sorry, Annie. If it makes you feel any better, she was eating lobster. Her kiss could have killed me. Where is your EpiPen? It's, it's in my pocket. Show me. Trevor awkwardly fishes through his pockets. You can't, can you? Because, as usual, you forgot it. And I've been a good little girlfriend carrying it around in my tiny clutch all night just in case my poor little boyfriend's throat closed up. I sacrificed my lip gloss to fit that thing in here. <laughs> Uh, she snatches her clutch off the bed and chucks the pen at him. Trevor shoves the pen into his pocket and went, ding, ding, another text. Trevor quickly turns his phone on silent. It's her, isn't it? Annie, no. Then show me. No. Why not? Why can't you just trust me? You won't even tell me your passcode. It's 8738. Show me. <laughs> she dives in, <laughs> trying to wrestle the phone out of his hand. He pushes her back onto the bed. Annie, cut it out. You're acting crazy. I need this to never have happened. Well, it did. And I hate it, too. Do you? Do you hate having two beautiful women wanting you for themselves? I thought she was beautiful until I met you. There's no comparison, Annie. I only want you, okay? Mm, you look pretty happy with her. I was being nice. She was smashed and talking about how lonely she was, how I took all of our friends in the breakup. I felt bad. I'm glad you have feelings, Trevor, but I'd like you to have them for me to want to spend time with me, but instead, you're avoiding me all the time like I'm a cater waiter serving shrimp cocktail. I do not avoid you. You wanna know the real reason why I was talking to my father's friends all night? Because you were talking to her all night. I, haven't, I know you haven't seen her in a while. I don't need you to stop talking to her, but you kissed her. I saw the whole thing. Yes, she was wasted and all over you, but you pulled her in. And the fact that you're denying it hurts the most. Annie, I was trying to keep her from falling over. Oh my God, I'm so sick of excuses, Trevor. If you want to be with me, then act like it. Three, two, one! Trevor swiftly pulls Annie from the bed and into a passionate kiss, and he pulls away and stares into Trevor's eyes. I'm so sorry, Annie. I love you. I hate seeing you like this. I hate that you don't trust me. I wish you could know how much I love you. I'm going to prove it to you. And he kisses Trevor this time, and they find themselves in a warm embrace. I'm sorry for being the jealous psycho girlfriend. I, I do trust you. I just get worried sometimes. You know the guys I've been with? I, I don't want to lose you. You have nothing to worry about. I'm yours. 
They resume kissing, and it quickly becomes more heated. Their hands start to wander. Annie slowly removes Trevor's jacket and guides him to the bed. She climbs on top of him, unbuckles his belt. She playfully wrenches it out from under him, yanks off his pants, throws them across the room. Annie reaches for her clutch and fumbles through it. Guess I also couldn't fit a condom in here. Trevor jumps up and hurries to the bathroom. I may always forget my EpiPen, but I never forget condoms. <laughs> ding, ding! Annie's eyes leap toward the sound. Silence envelops the room. She creeps over to the source of the sound from Trevor's pants. Now a bundle on the floor. She pulls his phone out of his pocket. Annie lingers on the screen for a moment. She calmly puts the device back and returns to the bed. Trevor emerges from the bathroom and giddily jumps back onto the bed. All right, where were we? Annie gradually approaches Trevor. She straddles him and gently kisses him on the cheek. The worst part is that I still love you. Suddenly, Trevor erupts in a pained howl. Yeah! Yeah! Pained howl! Ah. <laughs> Gasping for air. Annie slowly gets off the bed. She delicately pulls the EpiPen out of Trevor's thigh and places it next to him. Trevor shoots up, now sitting at the edge of the bed and gasping for air. You should probably have a passcode, too. Lilia is ready for you upstairs. She can't wait to pick up where you guys left off last night. Annie, please, I can explain. Annie retrieves her shoes, throws on her coat, and grabs her suitcase. Hope you can breathe easy this year, Trevor. <laughs> Annie exits, leaving Trevor alone in the room. End of play. <laughs> <laughs>
and he made a play. Then he had an allergy, and I don't know how that happened. Because like, I don't even have an allergy, and um, like, I don't even know why. But then an EpiPen came in, and it was a weapon. And like Chekhov, it's a gun. <laughs> it's a weapon. <laughs> and if you Downtown. It is late. There's nothing open. I know a place. Come on, this is ridiculous. Take off your coat and close the door. Abby stops him at the door. I love it, okay? You don't love it. I do, I do. It just... It, uh, it caught me by surprise. No, I know, I know that look. I've seen it a million times Come before. on! It's Christmas! We have my parents tomorrow. I knew we shouldn't have done gifts the night before. Well, thank God we did. What's that supposed to mean? We... Well, did you expect me to open that in front of my mother? See, this is why I'm leaving. Well, how do you want me to feel about it, Rhett? I thought you'd be flattered. Flattered? I think most people would think that it's romantic. All right. Let's set aside the fact for a minute that it's a naked painting of me. Which you know... Wait, no, let's not set that aside. What am I supposed to do with a naked painting of myself? <laughs> Hang it up? You think I want a painting of my naked body hanging in my home? <laughs> but then, like I was saying, setting that aside, it doesn't look like me! <laughs> you changed my body. I did not. Abby grabs the painting from behind the bed. My boobs, they don't do that. Do what? <laughs> they just look like breasts. Like your breasts. They are all perfectly perky, and my stomach is perfectly flat. It's a painting, Abby. You airbrushed me. I did not. This is how you no, look. This is how you would like me. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you don't think it's perfect. I was doing it from memory. It's not like I could have you model for it. Well, you remembered someone else's body because that ain't me. I did. Look, look. It's not. It's just the contrast in light. There. See the shadows. Is these give them? Does it give them a little volume? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I see that. Yeah, well, okay. Oh, you know, if you're going to be patronizing about my work like that, about this thing that I made for you, but then... But couldn't you have done a portrait of my niece or Chester curled up on his doggy bed? Or a freaking still life, for Christ's sake! <laughs> Something you know we could actually hang up. Oh my God! You are you are uh, you 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 are so hung up on hanging it up. I don't care what you do with it. Stick it in a closet. Just stick it in the storage place for all I care. You're missing the point. What is the point? I wanted to give you something that made you feel beautiful. Because every time I show you my work, you compare yourself to the women that I'm painting. That is not true. Isn't it? When they had my piece up at the exit art exhibit, your only response to it was, do you wish my butt was bigger? And the, <laughs> the night we flipped through my sketchbook, oh my god, it was like you were flipping through an issue of Cosmo. Every comment was about how this girl was thinner than you, about how you wish your tits were closer together, like another well, maybe girl. Maybe I wouldn't be so sens as sensitive if you wouldn't have slept with your models. One! That happened one time, long before we even met. And your ex? From high school. She wasn't a model. And that was, you know, I... I told you those things because we said we wanted to be open with each other, and now you're turning it against me. I'm not turning it against you. I just don't understand your obsession with this. I mean, why can't you paint something else? Why always naked women? It just, it, it, it makes me feel like I am not enough. See, that, that, that is, that, that's what I'm talking about. When I paint, what I paint has nothing to do with our relationship or what I want. It's just, that's what I paint. It's what I do well. And it's not a threat to you. He grabs the painting from the floor. That's why I made this, because I wanted to show you that I think you're beautiful and that there's no difference between you and them. Well, then you've succeeded because that's exactly how I feel. That's not what I mean. It doesn't matter what you mean. She grabs the painting from him. What matters is at the end of the day, this exists now. So now I'm just another permanent fixture in the collection. And when the day comes when you get your gallery show and hang this along with all the other women you've painted, you're right. There won't be a difference between us. Rhett grabs the painting back from her and puts his hand straight through the canvas, tearing half of it completely from the frame. Abby steps away from him, shaken. I guess you won't have to worry about that now. He tosses the frame to the ground and moves towards the door. Wait. He turns back to face her. What about my parents tomorrow? Tell them Merry Christmas. Rhett, stop. This isn't supposed to happen. Oh, and thanks for the jacket. I'm sure a lot of thought and hard work went into... Picking it out. He walks out as she furiously grabs the frame from the ground and heaves it at the door just as it closes, falling to her knees in the process. In front of her, half the painting torn from the frame lays on the floor. She picks it up and takes a final look at it before tearing it to shreds. Blackout. End of play.
little stuff uh, in the beginning with this song. So the first way it inspired this is, I, I really didn't know what to write, <clears throat> and it's actually a Petula Clark song. So at first, just to get some words on the page, I took a bunch of Petula Clark song titles and just made them dialogue just to kind of get, get it going. Uh, so that's how I started. And um, then I started kind of seeing these, this couple a little bit. And I thought, all right, there's a subway in this song, so it has to be somebody who lives in New York. And I thought of this character, Rhett, from then, who was a high school student who uh, was an artist and painted um, a naked portrait of his girlfriend and sent it to an art school in New York and got accepted. And I thought it'd be interesting to see what would happen if he just never stopped painting, painting naked women and that's just all he ever did. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and there's also a, a lyric in, in the first verse where they say, uh, forget your foolish pride. And so I felt like for me, that was the thing that was really informing both sides of their argument, that, that they were kind of holding on, he was holding on to his artwork so much, and she was, I, I just felt like they were both, they couldn't let this go. And initially I thought this was the kind of argument that they would have a lot, and this was kind of maybe the last one. All right. And uh, finally this evening, uh, we have what is, I, I, I alluded to before, it's my favorite Cry Havoc holiday tradition. It has actually, I think, become my favorite holiday tradition from the uh, very first collection of very short holiday plays. Uh, Jenny Curlin has always written a, uh, a screenplay, animated, short animated screenplay about her pigeons. And uh, a few years ago, she asked me to work with her on writing a full-length version of The Pigeons for a full-length screenplay, which we did. And so now I'm delighted every year to collaborate with her on the Pigeon Holiday screenplay. Uh, so uh, this year, the entry in the uh, ongoing Pigeon Saga is Empty Nest for the Holidays, a very short holiday screenplay by Jenny Curlin and Kit Lavoy, inspired by the song It Was a Very Good Year from Live at the Meadowlands. Featuring the characters Plume, Dovey, Stan, Bob, and Stella from their animated screenplay Pigeons. And uh, reading this will be Will Clark, Caitlin Wilcox, Annie Hayes, Allie Keller, Jersey Witdowski, Kerry Flanagan, Chris Comfort, John Brunner, and me. <laughs> Empty Nest for the Holidays. A very short holiday screenplay by Jenny Curlin and Kit Lavoy. Interior, Museum of Natural History, early evening. Behind a pane of glass, under a plaque that reads Birds of North America, an array of 40 stuffed birds are perched in lifelike poses around the diorama of the North American forest. Inside the exhibit stands Plume, a plump pigeon, fidgeting and primping his feathers excitedly in the reflection of the glass as Dovey, a beautifully colored ornate fruit dove, looks on. Look great, Plume. I do look great, Dovey. <laughs> Plume looks up at Dovey and smiles. His attention turns past her towards a lump of bright pink feathers sprawled on a rock nearby. Plume claps his wings together. Evie, we're going to be late. Let's go. Eve, a bright pink teenage pigeon, groggily sits up and scoots off the rock. Plume looks around the display case. Where's Denny? She shrugs. I'm not his keeper. Plume cocks his head at her, then he spits into his wings and flattens out her feathers. Evie squirms around him. 
Dovey reappears with Denny, a gray teenage pigeon, the spitting image of Plume, his head feathers sticking up in an artful arrangement. Dovey nods to Denny's head and smirks at Plume. Plume gives him an approving wink. Way to keep it hip, Den. Denny smiles. Plume springs to action. Okay, come on, guys. We don't want to be late. Christmas is a time for squabs. Eve rolls her eyes. We're not squabs, Dad. <laughs> not you guys. It's Toby's first tree lighting. You should have seen yourselves when you were his age. Your faces all lit up. It's my favorite moment of the year. And we're late. Plume dashes up through the loose tile in the ceiling and jets out into the dimly lit exhibition hall. As he disappears around the corner, his voice echoes through the halls. Christmas! <laughs> Come on, kids. They take off after Plume, the kids jostling to get through the loose tile first. Exterior, Fifth Avenue, early evening. The four pigeons soar low, skimming just above the stop-and-go traffic on Fifth Avenue. The storefronts on either side are lit and decorated for the holidays. The crowds growing more and more dense as they close in on Rockefeller Center. Suddenly, the buildings open up to reveal the enormous unlit Rockefeller Christmas tree, looming over the glowing ice of the skating rink. The base of the tree and surrounding grounds are blanketed with people, standing crunched together, shoulder to shoulder. Plume veers into the plaza, charging ahead of his family towards the towering tree. Something catches Eve's eye. Ooh, there's Jennifer on the Prometheus statue. Gen T? No, we hate her. <laughs> See ya, Mom. Eve coasts off towards her friend perched on the gold statue. Off in the distance, Plume calls back. I see a spot! Plume disappears into the evergreen thicket of the giant tree. Dovey and Denny follow after him until Denny lofts upwards as they near the tree. Interior, the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, night. In every direction, pigeons perch on the huge tree's branches, tiny unlit bulbs arrayed at their feet. Plume lands, the branch bowing slightly with his weight. Dovey lands and slides up next to him. Evie, look at... Plume turns behind him and notices that Eve is not there. Where's Evie? She went to sit with Jen. I thought they hated her. Different Jen. Ah. Plume looks around and notices. <laughs> and where's Denny? Dovey shifts her eyes up. Plume follows her gaze. On the other side of the tree, many branches up, Denny stands with an awkward formality in front of an adult pigeon couple, an adorable fe female teenage pigeon hovering nearby. Denny offers his wing to shake with the adult male. We went to sit with Chris's family. They can sit with us. He's nervous. Let him be. Suddenly behind them... Plume! Dummy! Plume looks back and sees Stan, a slimmer version of Plume standing proud with a tiny gray squab with ruffled feathers. Dovey squeaks and hops over to them. Is this Toby? Are you Toby? Tobes, Tobes, Tobes. How you doing, Toberino? Toby squeaks and attempts a smile bigger than his head, falling back into Stan's chest feathers. Plume and Dovey ruffle his feathers playfully and pat Stan on the back. Where are yours? I feel like I never see them anymore. Plume looks away from Stan, his beak red with embarrassment. They're growing up. Suddenly, Stella, a gaunt pigeon with a long neck and a few more plucked feathers than would be advised, <laughs> lands on the branch next to them. Behind her, Bob, her henpecked husband, and Billy, their equally henpecked teenage son, crash down beside her. Toby giggles. Stella, Bob, hey, Billy. I told you we'd be the last ones here. <laughs> We made it! I really didn't think we'd make it. 
It's like Bob had lost all his sense direction. He took us all the way up to the park. I wanted to get Billy a ginger snack. Sugar, Bob, sugar. He's almost an adult. He's bigger than you. Because of the sugar, Bob. <laughs> Do you see what I'm dealing with? I'm getting cold now, too, you know? If it's not one thing, it's the other. Stella catches Billy focused longingly on a group of young pigeons goofing around and bopping their heads to the music below. Don't even think about it. Those are bopping hoodlums. You stay right here. Stella shoots a commanding look at Bob. There's a lot of birds here, Bill. You can get lost. Oh, taken. Or taken. Don't scare him, Bob. You're supposed to be with your family tonight, Billy, because it's Christmas! And those hoodlums aren't your family. Plume nods his head affirmatively. But even Danny are with their family. I'm sure they're at home! Sick or punished. <laughs> Otherwise, they would be here with their mom and dad because it's Christmas! Stella looks to Plume. Plume just stares at her. He starts teetering back and forth nervously. Oh, they were not feeling well from eggnog. Boom! I can't believe you let them drink eggnog. Eggnog. All that egg. And the nog. Oh, Bob! Bob! Nog is fine, but the egg. Teddy is sitting with his girlfriend, and Evie is back there with a group of her friends. Ah. The crowd below breaks into a chorus of We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Stan takes Toby's wing and joins in, singing to Toby with a barely recognizable Sinatra croon. Toby looks up at him, eyes wide, beak agape. Plume smiles. He takes Toby's other wing and begins swinging him back and forth, higher and higher. Toby squealing with delight. Oh, Stan, he's going to go crazy at the way the colors light up at his feet. Just watch. Plume stops swinging Toby and crouches down to him. You might turn green. He pokes Toby in the belly. Toby giggles. Or blue. Another poke, a bigger giggle. Or pink. Poke, poke, poke. Toby bursts into a screeching peal of laughter. Plume grasps at Toby playfully and sweeps him away from Stan to the front of the adults to get a better view. He crouches down to him and points below. See that big red button, Toby? A man is going to push it and man, oh man, wait till you see what happens. Stan crouches on the other side of Toby. Yeah, Toby, uh, wait till you see. Plume mindlessly sweeps Toby to the other side of himself and points to the chorus singing below. And those people are going to sing one of my favorite songs. It goes like this. Just as Plume opens his mouth to sing, Dovey gently takes his shoulders and guides him back away from Toby. Stan slides in to fill the gap next to the squab. Stan boosts Toby up, pointing at the large gold and silver flags whipping in the wind, Toby cranes his neck to see what his father is pointing at. Aren't they sweet? Plume looks at Stan and Toby, his eyes wet. They look just like Christmas. I know. Dovey puts her wing around Plume. Stella, Bob, and Billy sidle up next to them and join in the last refrains of the chorus. Stella sings loudly, drowning out the rest. Billy mouths the words quietly, his eyes on a group of teenage birds below, laughing and racing each other around the base of the tree. At the end of the song, an excited murmur rolls through the crowd below, and the branches above them begin to shake with anticipation. Bob puts his wing around Billy, Stan lifts Toby up on his shoulder, then from below, the crowd begins to count down. 
Seven, nine, eight. Push in on Plume's face. He looks up away from the Christmas celebration below him. Seven, six. His eyes fill with tears. Five, four, three. Suddenly, Plume jostles right. Two. Then he jostles left. One. The world explodes with a huge burst of multicolored lights. Pull back to reveal, Denny and Eve are each stuck to one side of Plume, their arms wrapped around him. Thousands of tiny light bulbs of every color imaginable surround the birds and shoot up through the branches of the tree around them. The crowd below cheers. You guys came back? Of course, Dad. It's your favorite moment of the year. Eve and Denny smile wide, taking in the spectacle around them, their feet glowing green and blue and pink. Plume watches them, the delighted faces lit up by the glow of the colored lights around them. Eve glances over at Toby, who's squealing with delight and stomping his feet up and down in the different colors. Oh, geez, Dad, you're right. He's so adorable. Denny crouches to Toby and lifts his wing. High five. Toby <laughs> slaps his wing into Denny's. They both break into laughter. Plume smiles. Below them, the crowd sings joy to the world. Okay, I'm going to go skating with Jen. You just saw Jen. Two ends, Ma. <laughs> <laughs> Eve kisses Plume on the cheek and turns to Denny. You coming? I'm going to get Chrissy and meet you there. Why don't the kids just stay here for a bit? Plume smiles at his kids. It's okay. You guys have fun. You too, Dad. Eve and Denny jet off. Suddenly... Wait! The kids stop and turn back to their dad. Why don't you take Billy with you? I don't want Billy to hang with those. Those what, Stella? They're good kids. They're very, 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 very good kids. Billy looks eagerly to Stella. Bob steps between them. Go ahead, Bill. Stella crinkles her beak. Fine. But be careful. <laughs> I will. Billy smiles wide and joins Eve and Denny, soaring up and across the glowing ice of the skating rink. Dovey sidles over and squeezes Plume's wing. Stan yawns loudly, and Toby mimics his papa with the loudest, widest yawn. Plume and Dovey smile at them. Plume puts his wing around Dovey and joins the crowd singing Joy to the World, so loud he's almost screaming. He rules the world with truth and grace. He puts his arm around Stella. The worried look on her beak gives way to a little smile. And makes the nations prove. Stella joins tentatively in. The glories of... Dub and Bob join in. His righteousness and wonders of his love. The four friends sing with their wings around each other, watching as their teenagers and their friends zip around between the skaters on the ice rink below. And wonders of his love. The friends crowd around Stan, who crouches next to Toby, pointing to the ice below. Toby cackles. It seems like the entire world is singing now. And wonders, wonders of his love. Dovey leans her head on Plume's shoulder. We pull back out of the now-lit Rockefeller Christmas tree, up and over Rockefeller Center. Far below, the teenage pigeons zoom back and forth across the plaza en masse, hooting and screaming with delight. Final fade out. And that was inspired by this version of It Was a Very Good Year. I'd like to say
stop for a second to tell you that uh, several months ago I had a birthday. And the last time I worked here was my birthday. Sometime around the birthday, I think. But this last one I had, I finally... And then it gets into the song we all know. <laughs> Jenny Curl. All right. Get us with some inspiration. Um, many of you know that I love birthdays. <laughs> so I was very excited to get this song. And birthdays, to me, are my, it, it's my favorite moment of the year. Um, and so I wanted to write um, a short holiday screenplay this year with Plume, where it's Plume's favorite moment of the year. And uh, Plume's favorite moment of the year is the Rockefeller Christmas tree lighting. Which has been something that has been uh, recurrent throughout all of the different holiday plays, or many of them anyway. And then also we talked about the idea of it being um, uh, a very good year and all about time passing and life passing and life changing over the years. And one of the things we wanted to do was sort of that idea of as your kids are growing up, which actually last year's was, or two years ago, was about their first, the very first holiday pigeon screenplay was about Plume and Dubby getting together. And it was and called Nest for the Holidays. It was called Nest for the Holidays. And, um, and so they, uh, a couple years ago was their first year with the, with the teenagers. Last year was really about the teenagers. And this year was about what happens when your kids are growing up and how, um, you know, the traditions are falling apart a little bit. But at the same time, that idea that as your kids are getting old enough to be independent, they're also getting old enough to be adults and do kind things on their own. And that idea that the kids show up for Plume's birthday. Uh, that, <laughs> basically, the, the fact that the kids, the fact that the kids show up for Plume's favorite moment because they choose to, rather than because they have to. Um, sort of, I think those sorts of moments are really important moments in the evolution of, of a relationship between a parent and a child. So we wanted to put that in the play. So, um, empty nest for the holidays. Yay! Um, so again, thank you everybody for coming out tonight. Thank you again for Lock 227 for having yes. us. Thank you Thank you to Jen and Jersey for doing uh, 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 teamwork duty on the stage directions. Jenny. And also, we have this collection of the, these holiday plays we read. Also in the collections this year are holiday plays by Sharon E. Cooper, Antonia Singer, uh, Leah Philly, Becky Goldberg, Bill Kenner, Allison McLaughlin, Becky Sterling-Rigg and Caitlin Wilcox. Woo, you can woo. get your own collection for yourself or a loved one by going to cryhaveacompany.org slash gift. So again, thank you everybody for coming. Thank you, Log227, for having us eat some more cookies. And uh, thank you. Happy holidays. Hi, this is Jenny Curlin, and you just heard my holiday pigeon screenplay, Empty Nest for the Holidays. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this special holiday episode. Again, if you would like to get a copy of this collection of very short holiday plays for yourself or someone you love, and also support the programming of the Cry Havoc Company, including this podcast, visit www.cryhavoccompany.org gift and gift a piece of Cry Havoc for the holidays. Thanks again to everyone so much for joining us. And thank you very much to Loft227 for hosting us for our annual holiday event at their beautiful event and performance space. A new season of the Cry Havoc podcast will begin in the new year. If you have not already done so, please subscribe for free on iTunes to join us for our regular discussions about the craft of acting, writing, and directing, and about the realities of being a working artist in New York City. You can also go to iTunes to check out all of our previous episodes, including other special holiday episodes featuring very short holiday plays from previous years. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company, our upcoming events, and how you can help support the work in the community by visiting www.cryhavoccompany.org. So, for myself, Jenny Curlin, Jen Reichert, Jersey Gwizdowski, Jennifer Kerfman, Emily Claire Schmidt, Kaven Hallman, Allie Keller, Julia Bilbao, Will Clark, Kerry Flanagan, Caitlin Wilcox, John Brunner, Chris Comfort, Kristen Grenade, Addie Hayes, Sharon E. Cooper, Antonia Zinger, Leah Philly, Becky Goldberg, Phil Kenner, Allison McLaughlin, Becky Sterling Rigg, and everyone here at the Cry Havoc Company. Happy holidays, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.